One of my all-time favorite interviews on the morning show regarding a sports topic happened way back in uh, 2009, maybe 2010, when I spoke with a sports writer by the name of John Eisenberg about a fantastic book called The First Season, That First Season, How Vince Lombardi Took the Worst Team in the NFL and Set It on a Path to Glory. He told the story that uh, is largely unknown, even amongst Packer fans, about just how bad the Packers were before Vince Lombardi uh, came aboard and set that ship aright and uh, took them uh, in, into uh, NFL history. Uh, I am so happy to be able to reconnect with uh, John Eisenberg about yet another fantastic book called The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken Jr., and baseball's most historic record. We are talking about uh, a Major League Baseball record that stood for many decades, set by Lou Gehrig, playing in 2,130 games uh, without interruption. Actually, uh, as many people know, until he himself took him out, took himself out of the lineup, as uh, the symptoms of ALS at, at that point not yet diagnosed uh, began to uh, undercut uh, his magnificent abilities. Uh, on the diamond. Nevertheless, he lasted 2,130 games, uh, and it was a record that uh, stood uh, unequaled for many years until it was finally broken by Cal Ripken Jr., uh, a a star for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, In this fascinating book, John Eisenberg looks at these two uh, exemplary baseball players and their place in the record books, but also looks at the phenomenon of the streak itself through the history of baseball, helping us understand at what point such a thing became something uh, to even notice and celebrate, and uh, some of the great ball players uh, who have also uh, managed to achieve very, very impressive streaks. He also raises some intriguing questions that have sometimes been raised by the media along the way. Is this sort of a record, a selfish sort of record, uh, because uh, is it sometimes a case of a player uh, safeguarding their streak at the expense of of their team uh, when that player might be going through a, a rough patch or a serious slump or whatever uh, in which their best place might be on the bench? Uh, a lot of intriguing questions come up, in it, and by the end of it, we, uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, relishing this great American game all over again. The book again called The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken Jr., and Baseball's Most Historic, record. And uh, John Eisenberg, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you. I appreciate you remembering uh, one of my uh, former books, and I'm glad to be with you again. I'm uh, really happy to have this uh, this, this opportunity to, to speak with you. I loved that book about the Packers, and I loved this book every bit as much. Uh, usually I would ask some sort of question about uh, why did it occur to you to uh, to write this particular book, or when did you become aware of this particular story? Because you are someone who has covered the Baltimore Orioles and all sports in Baltimore for many, many years, uh, that's actually a question I really don't need to bother uh, asking. I suppose anybody who has lived in and around Baltimore knows all about this streak. Uh, But perhaps you didn't know until you began researching this book just what a rich story this would be beyond these two exemplary ballplayers, Cal Ripken and Lou Gehrig? Well, you hit it right on the head. Very good, because, yes, my original idea 
uh, was, uh, having lived through the Ripken streak and written about it extensively, uh, my original idea was to hold it up to the light uh, with Garrick's and uh, compare them. I thought that would be very interesting because the streaks, even though it's the same achievement in the same game, um, ostensibly by the same rules, but so different in every way almost. And when you think about it, Garrick played every minute of his career in the heat of the day, summer, you know, in the light of day. Uh, never played a minute of night baseball. Uh, Ripken, of course, played thousands of games at night, but uh, Ripken also played on uh, artificial turf, something that Garrick never played on, much, much harder on Cal. There are just many, many ways to compare these records, and I thought it would be really interesting to dive into that, but almost as soon as I started doing that, I realized I can't tell the story of these streaks and how they were attained in these two men without telling the story of this curious record that you uh, described so well, uh, because it is a, just an odd record. Uh, I can't think of another one where, I mean, if you hit a bunch of home runs, people just cheer for you and say that's a great achievement, or if you strike out thousands of batters or whatever it may be, people applaud. I mean, they still applaud at Garrick and Ripken for playing these games, but there's always an undercurrent of people saying, why, why are you doing that? Uh, you know, is it, who cares? Some people say, even I mean, that's what Babe Ruth said to Luke Garrett. Who cares? So uh, anyway, uh, it, I realized I had to really dig deep, tell the whole story of the record, and it became a much larger assignment uh, and a more interesting one, I thought. So uh, it took me back to the very beginning of baseball through modern times, really, through today. So uh, a large, uh, it was a, a large task. It took me four and a half years to complete it. And, uh, and uh, you know, once, once it was over, I, I had a, a pretty large large i had put these two streaks in context right absolutely and uh we all applaud you for it that's uh no small feat um and i appreciate the fact too that uh your book by no means begins with lou gehrig uh you set this in a in a longer wider historical context uh, as well although uh, it's it's certainly true that uh, the 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 keeping of statistics was in a sense much spottier uh, in the 19th century, and uh, uh, even so, we can look back to the 19th century to the the, the first ball player to achieve uh, an impressive uh, streak. Tell us about this uh, interesting gentleman by the name of George Pinckney. George Pinckney, baseball's first Iron Man, uh, played uh, for Brooklyn. We're going so far back, they weren't even the Brooklyn Dodgers. They were called the Brooklyn Bridegrooms because several of the players got married one offseason. And they said, oh, well, we'll call them the Bridegrooms. So uh, it was a little more casual about nicknames than back then. But anyway, Pinckney was the third baseman, and he played without a glove. So uh, this is really the early days of baseball. And he was sort of a stalwart. I mean, it's much like what Ripken and Garrett attained decades later people they, no one quantified it though uh, they just knew as you as you said the statistical apparatus which I, I detail in the book was was very unsophisticated mistake ridden prehistoric really so they just knew he was dependable they didn't know he played in so many games in a row and I certainly didn't know the number and and but he did uh, it was only, it was when really when uh, the first generation of serious statisticians came along in the early 1900s 
that they were able to ascertain that he played in 578 straight games, making him the first Iron Man. Do I remember that he is a a a, a player uh, renowned for having played at least one game without a glove? Oh, he definitely played without a glove. Played a lot of games without gloves, mm. and uh, yeah, he was a little little portly little little third baseman. He was just sort of good with the. Uh, uh, he was a, a contact hitter, uh, very good defensively, but yeah, without a glove. But that was actually common back then. It was just. When he was playing, it was just becoming evident that maybe people should play with clubs. <laughs> right, might be better. Right, and so and uh, and, and the point, of course, is that uh, to, to to play uh, 578 games consecutively uh, with the sort of primitive equipment of the day uh, says something uh, about his toughness and and really the toughness of, of of everybody who played baseball back then. Without a doubt. Uh, of course, as I detail in the book, it was a pretty wild time in Major League Baseball. Players were not exactly looked upon as the highest uh, form of, uh, you know, the highest level of society, and uh, there was a fair amount of drinking going on and carousing. And I think what really, what really made people proud of him is that he, you know, he didn't show up. Uh, he he was sober enough to play every day. So uh, that, that <laughs> there was definitely a small aspect of that going on as well. <laughs> right. Um... The, the 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 ball player who ended up breaking um, Pinckney's record, uh, and he did it in, in pretty spectacular fashion, is a player that uh, very few people remember today. It's a name that was completely unfamiliar to to me, Everett Scott. He broke Pinckney's record, if I remember right, uh, back in in 1920. Uh, tell us more about him and what about him made him the man to break this record. Well, and what's interesting about Everett Scott is that if you lined up 100 players from that era and said, pick out the Iron Man, he would be number 100 probably that you would pick. Everett Scott was a little 120-pound shortstop for the uh, Red Sox and Yankees during and after World War I, played with Babe Ruth in both cities. And just uh, with, with bug eyes and, and, and jug ears and a chronic case of the boils, he had to wrap himself before every game. So uh, really kind of a the schoolyard wimp, you know. But uh, he, he was a, a really strong fielding shortstop and somehow got it into his head that he could play. He wanted to just play every day. That was how he could contribute, putting his defense on the field uh, every day. And so he was able to do it, and he was the one that really brought the idea into the light. And, uh, yes, he passed Pinckney and went on to play in 1,307 straight games. And uh, like Pinckney and then like Garrigan Rifkin later, he was kind of an all-American image. Uh, that is definitely a current running through the history of this streak. Uh, his teammates called him the deacon because he got up and went to church on Sunday. And uh, let's just say that not all of them did. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, uh, as you've maybe already touched on, he was very conscious of this streak. This was something he wanted to accomplish and, uh, and, and got it in his head that it would really be cool if he managed to play in 1,000 consecutive games, and he managed to do that. So this is a case of, of someone who wasn't just a, a grinder who kind of accidentally or absentmindedly happened to break this record. 
I mean, this this meant a lot to him. It meant a lot to him, and yes, that the the real goal for him was a thousand. And when he reached a thousand, it was something new in baseball, and it received a lot of attention. Um, I came across front page. I mean, it was blared across the top of the sporting news, which was really the bible for baseball back then. Uh, pictures and articles and a big thing, and they had a big. It was in Washington, and they had a huge ceremony with the Secretary of the Navy there, and it, it was a big, big deal. Christian Science Monitor. I found a column written about baseball about Everett Scott being a dependable guy who could play every day and how fans could relate to that. This is decades before Garrigan and Rifkin sort of became famous for the same reason. So Everett Scott really created the mold uh, of the Iron Man that would become so famous. Is he the player uh, where the, where you tell the story about uh him preserving the streak uh, one day when the trains got stopped. Is that uh, yeah. Everett Scott? Do you want to tease yeah, our Everett listeners Scott. with that story? He, he was about 20 games short of 1,000, and he was out in uh, the, the – they had taken the Yankees, had taken the train to Indiana – I'm sorry, to Chicago to play the White Sox. He hopped off in Indiana because that's where he lived. His wife was there. Spent the night with his wife and figured he could get up early the next day and take a train on into Chicago. Well – the train blew a cylinder at like six in the morning on the track and was just sitting there and he was in big trouble at that point. And so, uh, yes, there was this long escapade, something out of a, a movie where he, he talks a farmer, he goes, runs across a field, knocks on a farmer's door. The farmer lets him use the phone. He talks a cab dispatcher into coming to get him. And, and he takes a cab to, uh, South Bend, I think it was, and then two trolleys, three cabs. The cops are pulling him over the whole way. It's a it's a crazy dash, but he makes it to Comiskey Park in time for even the sixth inning of a game against the White Sox. And uh, the manager Miller Huggins looked at him, was furious with him. He had not been allowed to leave the team, but he he could have ended the streak. The manager could have ended the streak, but said, "All right, I'll put you in." Because you're so close to a thousand in a row, so we put him in and allowed the streak to continue. <laughs> High drama. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with John Eisenberg about his most recent book, which is called "The Streak: Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken Jr., and Baseball's Most Historic Record." Uh, the book focuses primarily on uh, Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken Jr., but uh, as we've been just now talking, uh, there are plenty of, of other uh, notable ballplayers uh, who are discussed in this book, uh, and it's really the, the whole history of baseball fans' fascination with the streak uh, that, that is really the heart and soul of this uh, fascinating book. Uh, one of the striking differences between Everett Scott and Lou Gehrig, uh, the player who managed to break his record and really shatter it, actually, uh, is the fact that we we think of Everett Scott and some of the others who came before them as as kind of grinding players who didn't necessarily do anything spectacularly well. In the case of Lou Gehrig, we're talking about, in a sense, a different caliber of baseball player, aren't we? Well, we sure are. You're talking about uh, one of the great players ever, certainly one of the great offensive players ever. Uh, when I interviewed Cal Ripken for this book, Cal said, you know, in some respects, it's almost embarrassing to be held up to the light with Luke Gehrig. 
But Lou Gehrig was a career 340 hitter. Uh, he had 175 RBIs one year, and that's in the same lineup with Babe Ruth, who cleared the bases pretty well himself. So just an amazing player. Was the career Grand Slam leader, career leader in Grand Slams until A-Rod. So fairly recently, just a, just a, one of the great players in history. There was no secret why the Yankees wanted him out there every day. Right. So in a sense, that that makes him re- really different because he's not just somebody that sort of hung on and just kept showing up and made a, a, his own contribution to the team. I mean, he was a superstar who also showed up game after game after game. Uh, uh, and he seems to have appreciated the notion of this streak uh, and was 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 anxious to to break this record at what point and why did this become important to him i think it became important to him uh five or six years into his career when when he started he he, he was uh babe ruth took him under his wing and and really taught him the ropes and and garrick was a kind of a naive kid and looked up to him uh they were very different um ruth was a carouser and Garrett was a real mama's boy in bed early. And I think as they got older, uh, Garrett came to resent Ruth, didn't really appreciate uh, the way he carried on in life. And uh, he also wanted to find some way to separate himself from Ruth. I mean, he was a great ball player, Garrett, but Ruth was the star. There was no doubt about it. So he, he sought ways to separate himself from Ruth. He even said this. He said, look, Home runs are babes thing. I'm going to be RBIs. I'm going to drive in runs. And, you know, I need to be different somehow. And I think another way to do that was to play every day. I think the streak, which did get a lot of attention, the, the owner of the Yankees, Jacob Rupert, was on record saying, we think it's, this is a great thing. We love seeing it. And uh, really holds the Yankees in a great light. And, and so, Garrett, without a doubt, after about five or six years, he wasn't coming out of the game uh, unless he broke his leg or something. I mean, he, he really wanted to break this record and take it as far as he could. One of the most interesting things about uh, your account of, of Lou Gehrig achieving this, this uh, record streak of 2,130 games uh, was all of the close calls and sort of near misses, all of the times in which this streak very nearly came to an end. And, uh, and in some respects, uh, Lou Gehrig ended up in, engaging, or, and sometimes it would be a manager that might engage in certain tactics that sustained this record in ways that we, we really don't see with uh, Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, in his streak many decades later. Just touch on at least a couple of the instances in which this streak was in very real peril. Well, there was a day in Detroit when, uh, by far the, the best example of that, where he, Garrick had a bad back, and he woke up one day with just really hurting. He couldn't get out of bed, and he had broken the record. He he'd broken Scott's record. He owned the record, and he said, well, I just don't think I can play today. But the Yankees, uh, the manager, Joe McCarthy, the trainer, Doc Painter, they all, they, they said, we want you to play. You should play. Keep the streak going. And so they got him in a cab. They got him to the ballpark. They dressed him. And he hobbled. They wrote out a lineup with Garrick, the first baseman, the famous first baseman, playing shortstop and batting first. 
And so they're in Detroit. He hobbles to the plate. Uh, first batter of the game, the pitcher throws him a pitch. And, of course, because he's a great hitter, he singles. He can barely stand up, but he gets a base hit, and he staggers to first base, and the Yankees take him out. And McCarthy takes him out, and that is his day at the ball game. That's how he extended his streak. It takes one at bat, or, or back then, you know, any sort of appearance on the field, you extended your streak. And so he did this a number of times, uh, not quite like that. They didn't jigger the lineup for him, but, uh, you know, a pinch-hitting appearance or a half-hitting of defense, a number of ways that did not con- that did not include a full day uh, on the ball field. Garrick did that 40 or 50 times during his streak because he might have been injured or tired or whatever, especially as he got older. He took that route a lot. Well, and... And 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 to be to be clear, this is not always uh, something that he would do, but sometimes this would be a, a decision or a choice that a manager might do. I suppose in some cases the line is blurred in terms of of of, of who did what, but one way or another, yeah. this streak was sustained. That's correct. Yes, and intentions are always very interesting, and in uh, it's an undercurrent of this book. You know what? You know who who cared the most. Was it Garrick? Was it the team? Uh, I do think Garrick did care. I mean, he uh, the, he didn't mind if the team wanted to keep his streak going. And back then, it just was like fine if they want to do that. The attitude towards it was uh, it didn't really diminish from his 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 uh, his talents, or I guess that's the word. His as an Iron Man, you know, they thought well, he's still available almost all the time. He's a great ball player. He's durable and. If he takes a shortcut now and then, it's not a big deal. That that was that was the approach back then. Right. So it was um, in August of 1933 that Lou Gehrig played his 1,308th consecutive game, which uh, meant that he broke the record uh, held by Everett Scott. Do I remember correctly that Mr. Scott was on hand for an occasion that had to have caused him a little bit of pain. No, he was not on hand. He sent his regrets that he could not make it. Everett Scott became a, a, a national-caliber bowler. Mm. He was a bowler. And so he was at some bowling congress. That's right. He was invited but was not able to come. Couldn't make it. <laughs> and that would have probably been a hard thing for him to watch uh, from, yeah. the, from, from the stands. And... What's what's intriguing, of course, is that in a sense the the strike is no, nowhere near, or the 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 streak is nowhere near over. That uh, that Lou Gehrig uh, is is not about to to stop. Although uh, maybe other players might have uh, gone on a little longer and then uh, l- let it go. This is obviously something to which he hung on really tenaciously. Yes. Uh, you're talking about Scott or Gehrig? no? Now Lou Gehrig. I mean, once uh, he had broken Everett Scott's record, uh, yeah. he wanted to sustain this streak as long as he could. No doubt about it. And and I think his relationship with Ruth had something to do with it. Once Babe Ruth was done with baseball, he really he really ripped Gehrig in public comments, saying, "I don't know why Lou is doing that. It doesn't make sense to me. The Yankees aren't going to pay him to play every day. He's going to hurt himself, shorten his career." Garrick was furious about it, and uh, they didn't speak until Garrick became ill near the end of his life. And so Garrick, without a doubt, said, I'm going to play every day to prove Babe wrong. And he flat out said, I 
for it. Hmm. So, yes, there was no doubt. He was going to play every day. Right. It's in the middle of, uh, uh, I think, the 1938 season that uh, there are the first signs that something is wrong with Lou Gehrig. Um, just, ex- I mean, I know nearly all of our listeners, I'm sure, uh, know about the sad end to Lou Gehrig's uh, career. But your book really helps us kind of understand just how painful and bewildering and abrupt this decline was. Try to give us some sense of just when things began to go wrong for Lou Gehrig and how wrong they went. I have to say, I performed a lot of my research at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. They have a great research library and tremendous amount of stuff on Gehrig, uh, including Mrs. Gehrig's scrapbooks. And you can go through there and read all the news accounts and the things that she kept. And it is just the saddest thing you can imagine. I mean, you know, we're, we're many decades removed now, and there's been hokey Hollywood movies about it, and it's become sort of a fable. But when you read it in real time, it's just desperately sad because he's this great, dependable, strong player, who finally starts his talents start to ebb a little, and people kind of wonder what's going on, and maybe it's just age. And uh, he gets through the 38th season. He reports to spring training in 39, and he's really losing it. He, he can't play defense very well anymore, simple plays. And it's really baffling. And he can't deliver in the clutch anymore. He can't hit. And finally, very early in that season, he takes himself out of the lineup one day. He said, I just can't. I'm not helping the team here. He didn't look well. People didn't know what was going on. And so he kind of, after he ended the streak, which was sad for all involved, he hung around the team, traveled with him for another month. He thought maybe he was going to get better. He just had no idea. And then he goes to the Mayo Clinic, and and, and, and the uh, it's determined that he has ALS and that he's not going to live a long time, and it's a horrible life sentence, although he also thought he was going to beat it at first. So little was known about the disease. And uh, he ended up living just two more years. And so it's just desperately sad, I have to say. Researching this and, and trying to convey it in uh, in the book, just uh, it's really one of the saddest stories of 20th century America, if you ask me. Absolutely. What happened to Lou Gehrig? No, no question about it. I want you to describe the scene uh, at that uh, game. Uh, that would be in, uh, I guess, May of, uh, now is it 1939, uh, when Lou Gehrig approaches uh, Mr. McCarthy uh, and, in a sense, benches himself. Uh, describe what happened in that ensuing game. Well, it's, they're back in Detroit again where he almost ended the streak with a bad back. He's in the lobby of the hotel the morning of a game, and he, he does. He approaches Joe McCarthy and says, uh, uh, we need to talk. And they go up to McCarthy's hotel room, and Gehrig, that's it out straight. He says, take me out. I'm hurting the team. And uh, I think McCarthy, as he admitted later, was relieved because he thought Garrett was going to get hurt out on the ball field. He couldn't really field anymore. I mean, you know, ALS was taking over his body. And so just an awful thing. And so McCarthy goes back downstairs and announces it to the press who's hanging around in the lobby. And it just goes from there. So uh, Garrett goes to the ballpark. He dresses. He takes out the lineup card. PA announcer uh, says, you know, uh, he's benching himself today. There's an ovation. 
And the, the Yankees go out and win the game 22-2. to two. Uh, It was almost like they were angry um, at, uh, at fate. And so, uh, but Garrick, he never played again for the Yankees. That was it. He, once he benched himself after that day, never on the field again. Did he remain their captain? Uh, I believe his captaincy, that's a good question. I don't even know that. Hmm. Um, uh, you've stumped me with that one, but, uh, <laughs> he was no longer with the team on a daily basis after about early June. So right. he was the captain. It was a formality. Right. Best. And never really took the field again, uh, after, after benching himself. What a moment in, in Major League Baseball and, and a tragic end to an amazing career. We're speaking with John Eisenberg, talking about his book, The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken Jr. in baseball's most historic record. So the, the record of Lou Gehrig stands for many, many decades. Uh, it is not broken until 1995. But there are other Ironmen who uh, make the attempt or at least have the dream of achieving similar streaks, and you talk to just about uh, all of them. Uh, maybe just choose one or two of your most uh, memorable encounters with uh, some of these baseball superstars who had streaks of their own that uh, nevertheless uh, did not end up approaching uh, what Lou Gehrig achieved. Well, Steve Garvey uh, is definitely one that uh, I found memorable. He is still the National League record holder. I mean, Garrig and Ripken both were American Lakers. Garvey set the National League record playing for the Dodgers and the San Diego Padres in the 70s and 80s, 1,206 straight games. And he was just unabashed. I, I want Garrig's record. Uh, I, I, he thought it was one of the great achievements in sports history, and he thought he had a chance to do it. And he did take an occasional pinch-hitting appearance and things, but mostly was on the field. Uh, and uh, he was with the Dodgers and then went to the Padres as a free agent. And the Padres were going to let him play. They were, gonna, they were sort of a, a team struggling, and they, they, they really were glad to have him, and, and they were going to let him go as long as he could. And he thinks he could have gotten pretty close, uh, Steve Garvey. But he broke his thumb sliding into home uh, trying to score a run, and – I, when I interviewed him, 30 years later, he's still depressed about it because <laughs> he thinks he could have gotten pretty close. He really does. He was about seven years of games away. He was 32, still a pretty good ball player, so not impossible, and uh, kept himself in great shape. He could have made it, but and, and all these years later, he says it's his greatest achievement in baseball, and this is a guy who won World Series and was a National League MVP and home run champion, all these things, but he's proudest of having played in 1,206 straight games. Hmm. Uh, someone else who was also an impressive uh, uh, Ironman was Billy Williams. Uh, what was his relationship to the streak? He was, I think, tortured by it would be the best way. Hmm. He, Garvey broke his record. Williams, of course, great outfielder, steady hitter, producer for the Chicago Cubs for many years. And even uh, reading his quotes in real time was so interesting. Even while he was doing it, he would say, you know, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure this is a good idea. Uh, (laughs) I can't believe I'm doing this, but I am doing it because it's in my DNA really to be out there. I can't stand to not be out there, so I'm out there. 
And he he played in, let's see, it was 1,117 straight games. Garvey broke his record. And he finally took himself out and said, this needs to end. Uh, I, I need to, I'm, I'm running out of gas here, basically, is, is what he said. Maybe it was all those day, day games at Wrigley Field. But he was, uh, he was running out of gas and decided that it's better to give yourself a break now and then. <laughs> Before we get to Mr. Ripken, I also want you to uh, make mention of, uh, of an intriguing Japanese player that you talk about who achieves quite an impressive streak of his own. Yes, well, he's the, he was the world uh, record holder. There's uh, Actually, Japanese baseball, sort of the approach is very team-oriented, and, and um, it's a little different uh, approach, and it, it, it sets up well for Ironman streaks. You do what the manager says. There's less individualism. And if the manager wants to play him, you, you play. And so, yeah, there was this, this uh, third baseman and first baseman, Sachio Kinugasa, for the Hiroshima Carp, who uh, uh, was a great player and an Ironman and played in more games than Gehrig and broke Gehrig's record. And in Japanese, in Japan, they celebrated him when he, when he, he did that and wound up playing in, I think it was 2,215 games in a row, something like that. Right, I think so. And, and so it was... Yeah, well, I mean, Ripken wound up breaking his record, and they met each other, not to get ahead of the story, and wound up being friends. Uh, they're still friends. But uh, Kinugasa uh, is uh, is the Japanese Iron Man. Right. Um, and, of course, that's that's not a name that's uh, nearly as familiar to any of us as the names of Lou Gehrig and, uh, and Cal Ripken right. and the other folks we've right. been talking about. Is there any reason for us not to venerate his streak as much as uh, these other streaks that we are are talking about. I mean, is it an equal, comparable achievement? Absolutely. All right. It's different in the sense that the Japanese season is, is only 130 games. So um, it's a, a, a Garrick, a Ripken played in 162 every year, so 30 fewer games is a significant amount uh, the, the, because the core task of any streak is to play a full season. Of games, and then you can then you can go take a nap. But Kinagasa, uh, uh, so 130 games, a little less, but nonetheless, uh, it's the same thing, day in and day out, playing. And he got hit, he's hit by pitch all the time, and played with injuries. So very much the same thing, no question about it. Hmm. We're speaking with John Eisenberg and talking about his book called The Streak. At last, we reach the name of Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, a player that, of course, you had a, a very uh, deep connection with because uh, of the fact that you covered the Baltimore Orioles so, for so many, many years, and that's, of course, where he made his his baseball home. Ahead of us talking about what Cal Ripken uh, achieved, uh, first of uh, tell our listeners a little bit uh, about him. Uh, about his background and maybe even a, a, a brief word about his baseball pedigree. Well, he is a he is a baseball lifer. He grew up in the game. Uh, his father was played for the Orioles minor league system and then became a coach, a manager, a developmental guy for decades, and then ultimately a major league coach, briefly the manager. So, fifty years in baseball, close to fifty years. So, Cal grew up 
uh, his father, every summer they would go to wherever Cal Sr. was managing, whether it be Asheville, North Carolina, or who knows where, somewhere, some little dot on the map. And they grew up going to the ballpark and watching their dad plow the infield and, and make out the lineup, throw batting practice, drive the bus, do everything. So Cal grew up with baseball in his blood, and as he got older, his father, and became a prospect, his father definitely uh, imparted to him a philosophy. I mean, you know, there was a way to do, to be a ball player if you were going to do this. You, you know, you, you get to the park early, you take infield, you take batting practice, you have your head in the game, and if the manager wants you to play, you play. Uh, you know, keep your head down and, and all that. And so Cal definitely came into professional baseball with uh, a mindset that, uh, you know, if at all possible, you, you should play. And so that's where he came from. And it had, it had a big impact, needless to say, on uh, his, his, the way he approached baseball. What were his greatest gifts as a baseball player besides longevity and durability? Well, I would say two things. Number one, physically imposing, powerful guy that gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, Ken Singleton, a team, former teammate, said, probably the strongest player I ever played with. Uh, and one of his uh, former teammates, uh, Mickey Tettleton, a catcher who played with and against Cal, I asked him, what was it like sliding into second when Cal was turning the double play? Mickey said it was like sliding into a tree. So just a big strong guy that definitely was an asset and uh the other thing i think was his analytical approach his mind he's very philosophical you know just a he's an analytical guy that's just the way he approached things he would always analyze any situation and uh, it helped him uh learn how to use his body say around second base and uh keep himself out of harm's way and just he was just a smart ball player is really what it comes down to. And so he carried himself in a, in a lot of ways that enabled him to avoid injury. What kind of relationship did he have with Baltimore and with the Orioles organization? Well, I mean, the Orioles supported him. I mean, Baltimore, they loved him. He grew up in Aberdeen, Maryland, just north of Baltimore. He was a local kid. So he was beloved from the beginning, uh, the son of a coach, and uh, just everything about him. He was the wholesome all-American kid. Uh, didn't want to get out of the lineup, and what was there not to love? As soon as he got to Baltimore, uh, he was Rookie of the Year, is a, and then American League MVP and World Series champion. That's in his first two years. <laughs> so just from the get-go, a hero. And so that never really changed. He was a hero here, and uh, and the Orioles just loved him. They loved having him around. What was there not to love? So, uh, you know, he was as popular as it gets. He achieved his streak, uh, in a sense, in a cleaner fashion than uh, than Lou Gehrig did. Uh, that's one of the kind of intriguing comparisons between the two, that Cal Ripken seemed really determined to, in a sense, not cut any corners in preserving this streak. Is that fair to say? It is. That's, that's the biggest difference in these two streaks, uh, I think. They're both, uh, believe me, I'm in no way disparaging Lou Gehrig, but uh, Cal's streak was pure, pure one. It went, 
he started all 2,632 straight games, uh, started them with the intention of playing nine innings. He got tossed out of a few, got pitch hit for a few times. The vast majority of the time, he played to the end. Uh, there was none of that corner cutting and things like that, and not a DH. You know, he was there to play ball. And right. So, uh, none of these it, sort it, of token pure... appearances. Uh, he was always, I mean, he's, he was generally speaking, started a game and finished a game through this yep. whole streak. It's the biggest difference, if you ask me. It's the separator between his streak and Garrett's streak. There were a couple of moments when this streak was in fairly significant peril. Uh, especially when it came to uh, you know, trying to achieve it cleanly. Uh, probably one of them was uh, that seriously sprained ankle. Was it uh, 1985? Right, right. He sprained an ankle the second game of the 85 season, and fortunately the Orioles had a day off the next day, so he was able to treat it and give himself about 48 hours to get it under control, and he did, and so he was able to play. Uh, that was a close one. And the other close call, he was in a brawl. Uh, the Orioles and the Mariners, right after Camden Yards opened the second year, had just a huge brawl on a Sunday afternoon. And Ripken was on the bottom of the pile. And he comes out of it with a twisted knee. And the next morning, he finishes the, that game. The next morning, he can barely walk. He can't put any weight on it. And he thought it was over that day. He said, I, I, I can't put weight on my leg. I'm in trouble here. But again, he went to the park, he took treatment, and it turned out he wasn't, it wasn't a ligament tear or anything. It was something you could treat. And so by that night, he was able to get on the field and play. And uh, that was, uh, it was a very close call to hear him tell the story. But, you know, it came out on the right side of things. Cal Ripken was, by and large, a very consistent player and a great player, but he had patches that were rough. Uh, during this streak, how much criticism uh, did he have to endure during those rough patches? I mean, how many naysayers were there who said, uh, uh, it, it, you're, you're caring about this streak more than you're caring about the Orioles? There were a lot. There were a lot of naysayers. Cal told me when I interviewed him, he says his recollection of games 1,300 through 1,800 the streak his recollection of that time is pretty much all negative because he was taking a lot of heat. The Orioles were losing. Uh, they were in a rebuilding period, and everything looks bad when that's happening to a ball club. And people will say, well, wh- why is he out there playing every day? What do we need that for? And he was hitting 210 at times, as, as was the case one year at the All-Star break. So he, he took a lot of heat. And... Um, and that's certainly something Garrett didn't deal with. Of course, Garrett was never hitting two ten, but uh, so Cal dealt with a, a, quite a bit of criticism, and and just he obviously just felt differently. Uh, uh, and as did the managers who continued to put him out there. Uh, there, you know, he always felt he there was even if he wasn't hitting, there was something he could do to help the Orioles win. His defense was great. He altered how other people were pitched too and his leadership, just a number of ways uh, that he could help them, and the managers kept putting him out there. Hmm. I'm no baseball fan, but I was in front of my television set uh, the night that he broke this record, September 6, 1995, and I know all kinds of Americans were, whether you loved baseball or not, it was hard uh, not to be drawn there. 
And, uh, and of course, it's especially interesting. It's unlike uh, uh, when Hank Aaron broke the, the home run record. You never knew when that was going to happen. But there was this colossal sense of anticipation because barring him being hit by a train or something, uh, everybody knew that night this record, this amazing record was going to be broken. Uh, what are your recollections of that historic occasion? Well, I was there that night. <clears throat> I wrote a column for the Baltimore Sun and uh, had a front row seat literally in the press box, and so I had a great view. It's probably the greatest thing I ever covered, most memorable night. And, uh, yes, the everyone knew it was happening. Uh, the, there was a great air of anticipation, years in the making. And what was the president of the United States was there, Bill Clinton. The vice president was there, Al Gore. Joe DiMaggio was there. Uh, the Orioles had invited him. He had teamed with Garrick early, early in DiMaggio's career, late in Garrick's career. He was, they were teammates. They invited him to come, and he came and gave an eloquent speech. So just you just felt like you were at the center of the universe. And uh, and uh, Ripken, of course, what most fans remember from that night is after he had the game was official and he'd broken the record. He fans cheered so long that he he went. The game couldn't be get restart. It was the middle of the fifth inning, and finally his teammates pushed him out, and they said, why don't you go shake hands with the fans or something, do something so we can play this game eventually. And he winds up circling the field and, uh, and just a, an organic uh, celebration, totally impromptu, shaking hands with just the fans, 22-minute delay in the game. We'll never see it again. Right. And uh, this amazing celebration took place. And for those of us not fortunate enough to be there in person, it was nearly as dramatic to watch it on television, in, in part because ESPN went without a commercial for that long, long ovation. And my recollection is they didn't say a word either. I mean, never seen anything like it. I mean, that long where... The announcer stayed silent, and we were just allowed to take in that uh, that amazing yep. scene. And, of course, uh, uh, Cal Ripken's remarks were so beautifully eloquent, especially uh, the opening words, Tonight I stand here overwhelmed as my name is linked with the great and courageous Lou Gehrig. Incredible. Uh, so is it even worth it to try to compare these two streaks, or or is it better for us to just appreciate each of them in their own way, the streaks of Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken Jr.? I would go for the latter. I, I, I post all this to Cal. We, it's in the book. We went over it sort of uh, with the different ways you could compare them. He enjoyed the exercise, and uh, it is interesting how you can break them down. I, I posed the question to Steve Garvey. I, you know, I call him a neutral uh, arbiter in the case of Ripken versus Gehrig. And uh, he says, you know what, it's pointless to do that. There's so many ways. The, 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 the reality is they played in different eras under different circumstances. They were the only ones who did what they did. So uh, they both deserve uh, uh, great credit for doing what they did. And I, I kind of agree with that. The book, again, is uh, The Streak, Lou Gehrig, Cal Ripken Jr., and baseball's most historic record. And the author... Uh, John Eisenberg. John Eisenberg, I congratulate you on a yet another superb book. And uh, I hope many people will seek out this book and revisit not only the amazing streaks of Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken, but this whole long, complex and fascinating story. And thank you for being part of the morning show.
Oh, my pleasure, and uh, I enjoyed being with you again. Thank you.